This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. toast, clam sauce in the bowl, and the Jerusalem artichoke. But we added lemon zest and red chili flakes and thyme. It sort of all came together. And the clam and the sunchoke is um, a very, it's like an easy combo. If you haven't heard of Shelley Boris, you've been missing out on one of the most thoughtful and creative women in the food industry. She's the executive chef of the Garrison Institute, where she's even cooked for the Dalai Lama. She's the author of Fresh Cooking the owner of Fresh Company, a prestigious Hudson Valley caterer. And now she's the owner of the fabulous new restaurant Dolly's in Garrison, New York. As both an artist and chef, Shelley exemplifies how a delicious recipe of grit and determination can open doors and keep them open. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves each of us in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Shelley Boris, thank you so much for joining me today in the kitchen. We've known each other for a long time, but one of the reasons I'm very excited that you're here is because you may not know this, but you really are a hero of mine. Even though we started cooking pretty much around the same time, which is the late 70s, you have gone on to do things I never could have imagined. And I really want to talk about that today, what inspires you, what keeps you going, and the fact that you were in the food industry in the late 70s, have your own major catering business in the Hudson Valley, very prestigious. You run the restaurants and dining places at Storm King. You are the executive chef of the Garrison Institute. You waited 30 years to write your first cookbook and to open your own restaurant. So this is awesome. So in just those two minutes, I think people can get a sense of really your extraordinary career path and uh, why I'm so inspired by you. So anyway, let's get started. How, how did it start? How did it start? I was an art student in New York City. My mom was a good cook. We'll get to that, I'm sure. And so I like to eat. And that's pretty much <laughs> what drives me, probably mostly. I like to eat good food, and I kind of like to eat what I want to eat and not what I don't want to eat. So picky eater needs, needs a job <laughs> while I'm in art school. and living in, um, it was probably 78 or 79, and I graduated and was starting graduate school, actually, at Hunter College. And I got a job, and this is like so topical in a sad way at the moment at the Dean and DeLuca, like right after it first opened. Right. So here we are. Because it's not doing so well. No, but it is many <laughs> very dramatic. Many years later. The little uh, shop on Prince Street. And so I literally walked the streets until I got a job because I had a loft on Crosby Street, which is now Bloomingdale's. And it was, <laughs> I think, my share of the rent divided by four was like 80. No, I think I earned $88. I think my share of the rent was, you know, $150 maybe, and it was a lot of money for me at the time. And I walked and walked West Broadway, Prince Street, Green Street, Worcester Street. You know, it was like pretty dead at the time until I got a job. And But I, you knew you wanted it to be in food. Um, 
I wanted to be in that neighborhood, <laughs> and I wanted to be in a place that I liked, and I liked the idea of being there a lot, and I made a really big effort, but probably, truthfully, that day, I might have, I would have probably taken any job. I mean, not any job, but I wanted to, it, it was um, somewhat serendipitous. I mean, I can't say that was my goal. I was still thinking I was going to be a painter. Right, because you're a beautiful yeah. artist, and yeah. I've seen some of your work, yeah. and there is a big connection between women, artists, and the kitchen, Definitely. and we can certainly talk about that. But it doesn't surprise me, Shirley, because you have such immaculate taste and very, very high standards. I can see why you would be attracted to a place like Dean and DeLuca, because it was beautiful. It was very trendy at the time. Nothing looked like that. No, no gourmet food store looked like special. that. It was very yeah. special. Yeah. And I understand the first job you had was as a cheese monger. So I was a cashier. I wanted to be, I let them know right away. I wanted to go to the cheese department and I was a cashier and it was one of those incredibly dramatic. And maybe the last time Steve Jenkins had this horrible fight with Giorgio DeLuca. And so Steve Jenkins, of course, made cheese famous and he became the world's most famous cheesemonger for a while. And you worked for him. No, he walked Ah. out and left an opportunity. He, they had this horrible fight, which they would do all the time. And, um, (laughs) This, I think, might have been the last one. I worked there while he was there, and I did learn because I was there, but I wasn't in that department. It was very, you know, departmentalized. So I worked for Joel Dean as a cashier, and I wanted to work in the shoes department. So there was an opening. I mean, I didn't step into his shoes, but they needed people. So Great timing. I was said, okay, you can go to the shoes department. So that was probably 1979 or so. You know, 40, 50 years later, right? Cheese is so fascinating, right? All of the world's cheeses are sort of available to us now, but I can't get over how expensive cheese is. Well, they're also available. (laughs) They're good cheeses. There weren't that many good uh, domestic cheeses. There was great Vermont cheddar. You know, there were good regional, but not nothing. Like if I would ever have tasted like Jasper Hill in Vermont now, then it tastes like good Reblochon or maybe... Some of them might even be better because we're getting them from nearby and they're so small, the producers. And, yes. Uh, it is really extraordinary, actually. What's what happened? happened? Probably like wine, like a lot of things. In the, yeah. Like at that time, we all we cared about it was getting things that were imported. There were a few regional speckled heart grits or, you know, there were a few very special regional foods we bought. But we were so focused on getting authentic things from... France and Italy. Oh, yes, Telex, because we were so we were European and centric, ordering. right, Telly? Yeah. We loved everything from France and Italy at And that it time. was kind of better there then, then, in a way. But things have changed so, so much. much. And oh, my God, so much. So much part of who you are and so your much. sensibility about food and local, and we'll certainly talk about all of that. But, you know, so 1979, food really was not such a popular career path for, for women. No. I, Did you ever think about going to cooking school? Did you even have any role models or anyone else you knew who wasn't food at that time? You were really a pioneer. No, I had an, I had an aunt and uncle who owned a candy shop in New Jersey and then a deli oh. like in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I tried to be a waiter. I mean, I literally smelled the steamy kitchen as a waiter. I honestly said, I don't know what I'll do, but I'll never, ever work in a restaurant kitchen. <laughs> I, I was sort of in, not exactly embarrassed by it, but I... I couldn't mm. believe that I was, I really felt like I was just, you know, on the side 
uh, tangent in my life until mm-hmm. I sort of sorted things out or I was an artist working to do something while I was going to paint or whatever. Painting was kind of on the outs as well. And I was trying to make sculpture. And that was, I didn't have like the focus and the confidence in a way to keep painting. And so I was a little bit lost, but I was very excited to be in the city. Uh-huh. And I, you know, not to, con- I don't know how much to continue, but I met a woman who became my sister-in-law, but was oh, really? not Lewis, who we know now is works with John Thorne. Yes. So I met her and a lot of very important people to me personally at Dina DeLuca. So she was you know, now we're, we're just sister-in-laws and friends, but she was <laughs> nine years older than me, and I was probably 21. And so she was a fully formed adult human intellectual who was going to Oxford and knew Edna Lewis and knew Alan Davis. I mean, she just did – she important. was a scholar, and she knew about cookbooks in a way. My mom watched Julia Child religiously, and we had Joy of Cooking, and she was mm. pretty serious – but at some point, not so much. And Matt really just opened up the world of cookbooks to me. And that was the full-on uh, way in which I was – between the ingredients and Giorgio roommates I had that we cooked together with and Matt, that was my – I think of that as my cooking school. Really. It's fascinating because, you know, for people who are interested in food now, and it may seem impossible that people understand what the world was like – before the internet, uh, in the in the mid seventies, when the I call it the first food revolution, that's really when it started. Right, I think we're right. in a second one now. Yeah, but we all had to create our own paths. But I'm, I'm, I do want to go back to your mother. You're quite right. And what was happening at home, and maybe what was an early food memory for you as a child? I was born in Patterson, and at the end of a time when there were a lot of different markets, and she hung in there shopping that way, way past a lot of people that we knew. She never drove. so And my dad had a business in Patterson, and mm-hmm. so we took the bus. We went to a place, Railroad Avenue is where the vegetables were. We only bought chickens from the live poultry. Oh. We only went to the coffee roaster. We went, It was a store just that had coffee, and they roasted the coffee. And the fish market, Captain Hanks, I remember the name. <laughs> I mean, really, really specific, really specific. So she bought every single thing from, you know, a separate butcher, probably two different butchers. We weren't religious. We were, both my parents were Jewish. We had Italian relatives. So she mm-hmm. cooked. She was the youngest of eight. So she cooked mostly Italian food. At that time in New Jersey, you didn't have to travel too far south to go to, they called them, um, you know, truck farms, right? So huh. peaches, tomatoes, corn, melons. I remember the four big things like they fought over how long was the corn out of the you know when did you get it and how long did you cook it like I got it this morning what 20 how long ago did you get it this morning you know did you get it 20 minutes <laughs> I cooked it three minutes did you cook, did you take it out of the water you know like crazy this little, is fascinating you know? so I was super around ingredients and good food my mom was a very good cook she wasn't a you know she was a little like me really we in a certain way wanting things exactly the way she wanted them, a little bit insecure, and neither of us would say we were creative, original. Mm. I think we were cooking to get what we've had and like to make it good because we want to eat it and we want other people to like it more than we're trying to be inventive. I'm not inventive when Mm. it comes to 
But again, this goes back to this standard of, you know, excellence and perfection. And I love the picture you're painting for us about going to all of these different spots for exactly the right foods. And I don't really know anyone who quite had that uh, in in their background. But what's so interesting, 40-something years later, it so tells your story today yeah, yeah, and it's sort about of like, who you are as, as how... a chef and a professional. The one thing I, I don't understand at all is when you talk about not having focus and not having confidence, because these are, I imagine, the two biggest strengths you actually do have <laughs> in order to get where you have gotten. So I definitely want to unpack up. some I've of grown that. up some, yes. <laughs> because I think, you and know. And not in cooking. I didn't feel that way so much in cooking as I did probably when I was doing art. I art. think cooking and food came a little natural. So maybe I couldn't take it so seriously for a while because mm-hmm. of that, because I thought it was the side thing I was doing. And, and in many ways, it probably gave me more confidence. I, I was relaxed, a little more relaxed. Which is wonderful. And I mean, you really are extraordinarily thoughtful in every single task you undertake. And again, it's one of the reasons I admire you so much. When we come back, we're definitely going to talk about what you're doing now, the wonderful cookbook you wrote called Fresh Cooking, and the remarkable restaurant you just opened called Dolly's in Garrison, New York. It's fabulous. Here's a cooking tip to share. Today, it's from my guest, Shelley Boris. I have something fun that I learned. I was thinking hard about of how to make the best French fries. It's such a big deal to get them right. And I actually was uh, home having recovering from sinus surgery. And I literally spent my entire day researching <laughs> and thinking about and looking at pictures. And I found, it's not my recipe, but it was um, a Serious Eats, a recipe that we ended up, we use. And we take potatoes, we cut them, soak them. We then uh, boil them in vinegar water, cool them, hot fry them, the first blanch, which is unusual, freeze them, and then fry them at a little less hot than you might at, for service. So it's they're thrice cooked, and the vinegar, it's, it's, it's barely detectable, but they are. They're not quite salt and vinegar fries, but it adds, they're just a lovely crunch, thin, and delicious. From Shelly's Kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So, Shelly, many of us who got started in the late 70s, men and women, actually did not continue, but you certainly did. And you started your wonderful catering company, very prestigious, called Fresh Company, which is in the Hudson Valley. And that was in, I think, 2004. That's right. And then you became the chef of the Garrison Institute, which I definitely want you to tell us more about. You have cooked for very famous people. You have cooked for the Dalai Lama. You have cooked for Lou Reed and Philip Glass and Gorbachev and the who's who of the world of meditation and Zen Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism. And then you decided to write a cookbook and open a restaurant. So, So... Tell me what keeps you going. Where where are these ideas and 
stamina. Some of it is opportunity. Some of it is practicality, which sounds maybe strange. And I would say that I, well, I, I left New York a little bit hesitatingly. Um, I have I married Matt Lewis's brother, Peter Lewis, and That's he right. was anxious to get out of the city. And I gave him a three-year deal. I'd give it a shot. And we came to Garrison, and I knew I didn't want to commute. And so I got involved with a opening of a new property that's now called The Valley. It was at a golf course, but was called Bill Brown's at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was through that connection that I met the Roses and who were just getting the Garrison Institute started. So I actually started Fresh Company in 2004, having already been at the Garrison Institute prior to it. And it's oh. a, probably lots of little minutiae, but in any case, that was my the core, and in many ways remains the core of Fresh Company, is the Garrison Institute. It's very special, and I was there since the very beginning. Can and you describe what the Garrison Institute yeah, the Garrison actually Institute was and is and uh, continues to be? It was a friary, which is different from a monastery, but then it became a seminary. And then in around 2000, I'm going to say 2001, but 2002 maybe, uh, Jonathan Rose and Deanna Rose and uh, other people found this amazing property that was still part of the Capuchin Catholic Church, and right. it needed help, and there were not that many monks left, and <laughs> they uh, had a, a, you know, along with them, there's a lot of conservation money along the river, these big properties that were uh, religious organizations that sort of couldn't afford this big land, but I think we're super happy to have them conserved, and so there's these wonderful open space, Open Space Institute, Scenic Hudson, all kind of work together to save these properties. And one of them is this 12 acres right on the river. I know you've been many times. It's so beautiful. And, um, and the food help is me amazing. With my, you helped me with my cookbook. <laughs> and I'm very grateful to you. And We'll talk and, about that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, came there, and it's a wonderful place where up to 165 people can come and do retreats. And they're, they call it an institute, not a really a retreat center, because there's programming that goes on from their end. Uh, they have a concentration in areas like environmentalism and education and all kinds of programs and then also invite many outside groups to come. And so the space is usually being used by groups that are together focused among themselves. It's not like a hotel or a spa or anything. There's generally pretty serious contemplative work and sometimes business-related, but often thought sort of big idea-related. Yeah. And so we have rooms and that are beautiful, nicely appointed, but not like super luxurious, so it's a kind of a serious place. So beautiful garden, as I said, twelve acres looks over the river, and we have a wonderful dining room, like an old boarding school. Yeah, and but it was totally up to you because you were the first yeah, and yeah. Uh, the only uh, executive chef yeah. there. So, what was your philosophy and how to feed sometimes hundreds of people? Well, definitely it evolved. They at first everyone they thought they would have only vegetarian food. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who came, none of the cooks were vegetarian that we had hired. And most of the people who come are not vegetarian. So we ended up instituting something I called small amount of meat meal. It wasn't always <laughs> meat, it was fish. We had a commitment to um, humanely raise whatever you want to call that animals. And I've come sort of around full circle to be more interested in a way in the vegetarian food, actually, but it made people comfortable and happy to have a little bit of meat protein, mm -hmm. a little bit of cheese. I wasn't too interested and didn't know as much about um, meat substitutes. I, 
you know, that's evolved a lot too, mm-hmm. actually, since this is from 2004. And so I, my, I first envisioned serving people like one meal. And I realized each night, something different each day, something different. But people were there for sometimes a week or so at a right. time. And, wanted and sometimes a in more, silence too, right? So the focus silence, is really the on the beginning food. too. Yes. And they would get very hungry and they couldn't <laughs> control. They wanted a little more control, but we didn't want a sort of salad bar free for all either. So it, we kind of took these meals and, you know, deconstructed them, I guess you could mm, say. Mm-hmm. So that the, the meals and maybe the instead of having like lots of vegetables in a salad, we would do one, you know, we do our rice on the side and the curry might have just one or two seasonal vegetables and then there'd be a slaw and then there might be a topping and there might be a hot sauce. And we, so it was one cohesive meal that we ended up presenting, but in parts and it ended up five parts and it got a little bit more structured as time went on. So it's hyper-local, hyper-fresh, uh, seasonal, vegetable forward. Uh, yes, very um, much so. Very colorful And I do go there quite a bit. I think one thing that surprised me so much is that if you really do eat three times a day at regimented times, you know, breakfast is at eight and then lunch is at noon and dinner is at six, you never get hungry. Of course, there's also ample food. But, you know, the dining room, right, Shelley, it looks like uh, something out of Harry Potter in a way. It's so big and beautiful. And what's the... Hermione came once to one of the retreats, so that was everybody's. Oh, is that Emma right? From Watson? Right. <laughs> yes. So she, that was everybody's treat. That's very funny. But meanwhile, you are a very sophisticated chef doing this kind of rustic food because in your catering business, I mean, you are cooking for really famous, rather wealthy people up in the Hudson Valley. So how do you describe your food? I think of it as bright and I try to make mm. it fresh and flavorful and maybe a little zesty. I like spicy. Catering is interesting because one reason among many maybe to do the restaurant was to have in some ways a little more control. When you're catering, it's about finding something that I like, that cooks can make, but that the person who's hired you also wants and Mm -hmm. they might have a request. And so it's a collaboration a little bit more in a way than at a restaurant, I'd say. And maybe even more than a little bit more than a, I like structure. I like rules. I don't mind creating something for someone because otherwise, you know, when there's endless options, it's that is so hard it's to very focus. Personalized. Yeah, so it is very customized. Extremely yes, customized, so. personalized. Yes, personalized. Yes. So you have the catering business. You also do all the food at Storm King, which is this spectacular outdoor sculpture garden. Right. That's yet another, another job outlet. that you have that yeah. you created, and. Then you decided to do a cookbook. So what, after all these years, made you want to do your cookbook? So even though I I do love to cook, I think it's a kind of a push-pull. The kitchen and deadlines help me to be very focused. I like the idea of food because if you don't, it doesn't work, you eat it or it just, (laughs) you throw it away. I mean, it's not precious the way artwork was. Mm. But I am in a way, drawn to working alone mm-hmm. with full control over what I do. And and you like to teach because you're always teaching people in the kitchen too. Not so much? Well, <laughs> I wouldn't be, no. I mean, I like to 
show people what I like. I've never done cooking classes. Mm-hmm. I've, if somebody really set me up and they wanted me to show them something, I'd be super happy to be very specific. But I haven't really done official or formal teaching. So the book was most like a painting. It was something mm-hmm. I was going to be kind of stuck with and I had to go back to. And I, I think uh, writing, reading, writing, I wasn't a, a bad student. I love to read, but it was a different kind of a challenge. And I I was I just wanted it. I wanted something mm. that was in the end tangible and had a beginning and an end. It is different than painting though. People edit and rewrite and then you can say no and then you rewrite it. <laughs> it took me a long time. Yeah, books you know. can be excruciating, but I do want to say I was very honored when you asked me to write the foreword. It was really a joy. I, was honored I even brought it. it with me. I yeah. may read a little bit back to you to remind you who you are. Uh, but the book is called Fresh cooking. And it's beautiful. And the cover artwork is done by you. It's a beautiful, very kind of impressionistic spoon. And I think the original title might have been 100 Spoons or something like that. Right. right. Yeah. So that book came out in 2014, critically acclaimed. It's still available. People who come to the Garrison Institute, everyone wants to buy a copy because they love the food so much. But then you had the challenge of a lifetime, which was to open your own restaurant. And Shelley, I do want to say I had another guest on who opened her first restaurant at the age of 59. Her name is Nassim Alakani, and she opened a beautiful Iranian restaurant called Sofra. And I think, I don't know exactly how old you are, but there's some similarity (laughs) to this at this stage in life, doing something that is so huge, so risky, and so personal. So tell us about Dolly's and Garrison. So all through this, I want to say I have a wonderful friend and partner named Kimball Jell, who has been with me in every single, not so much the book, but in with Storm King and Institute and Cooking and all. And she. Um, what is Kimball's last name again? Kimball Jell, G E L L. G E L L, okay. And she's a great support and she's very intelligent and she came from a business and library background actually very different personalities and different strengths and I knew I wanted to work with somebody who had the same level of responsibility as much as interest is you know passion also that responsibility that was something I count on and and mm. has been important to me so there is a spot in Garrison that used to be called Guinan's. And if you ever look it up, there was a book written about it oh. called Little Chapel in the River that a woman named Gwendolyn Bounds wrote. She used to write for the Wall Street Journal, and she's still writing now. And it was in the same family for 50 years. It was like country store and it had a little bar in the back. The chapel was the bar in the back. <laughs> and it was very special. It's a, it's a, had a, it was really multifaceted legendary. I mean, it was written up in the New York Times when it closed. It was very, very special. It's really right smack on the river, right at the train station, looks at West Point. There's a ferry coming over from West Point. And it was a hub on this area of Garrison called The Landing, where there's a bookstore, very few things, an art center and a theater. And it's very special and beautiful. And it anyway, sad ending to a very special place. Jim Guinan passed away and then his son Try, took over and then he got sick and died at a you know much younger age mm-hmm. and that was in 2009 when it closed so I was found the place so special it was very close to the institute and I live in Garrison and that is what I I wanted to be there it's really important to me where I when I work and if I'm not home to be in these very special places like the institute Storm King mm-hmm. um, where I 
I, I came to terms with sculpture in a way that I hadn't. Yeah, you interesting. Know. So uh, this place just beckoned me, and there were a few practical considerations, like wanting a liquor license and a face to the public. And my child, I have two sons, so I loved restaurants. I had worked in restaurants, not a lot in the city, but I did. But it was hard to be a mom, and so a lot of why these things. What you asked me before was what kind of kept me going was mm. jobs that would allow me to be working and have some meaning in my life work-wise and also be available and be home with the boys and not commute to New York City and all that. So this became available theoretically around 2009, but for various reasons, many people came and went and I attached and detached (laughs) and you've heard some of those stories and and it's only been about one year ago we opened up and it's it has been incredible, and I do love being right there on the river and watching all that goes on. And um, It's simple and stylish. It is, again, very you. There's a certain level of perfectionism, even though it's a very casual restaurant. Mm-hmm. So why is it called Dolly's, and how do you describe it to someone? So it's called Dolly's. So uh, another, we have a team of people. We're very, I'm very lucky. You know, it's hard. It's an area with a very... Not a very densely populated uh, area, and a lot of people either don't work or they commute to the city or they're artists and freelancers. So putting together a team is is not easy. And I have a few people I work with that are so deeply involved that it's really is a collaboration. It's the most collaborative thing I probably have ever done in my life. So a woman named Damaris did a lot of the interior, finding furniture, designing, and the uh, filming of the movie Hello Dolly was done on the landing in Garrison where they rebuilt the whole this, the gazebo there. They made it look like 1890s Yonkers. <laughs> and so there was a lot going on because a gentleman who was really excited about the movie, I guess, put together a parade and a big show at the at West Point and at our local historical society. And they did uh, celebrations around Hello Dolly's it was funny because it was actually the 49th. This is the year of the 50th. It was the 50th anniversary of making the movie. So ah, it was a little okay. funny. People keep coming in and asking us now, are you going to do something for the 50th anniversary? And I was like, well, close we, enough. we did it last year. But <laughs> anyway, so she called it Dolly's. And at first I thought, well, but Dolly's for me was about what I liked and wanted to keep of Guinan's was the spirit of all the many ages. Like it truly is like a pub because you could bring your kids and they would get this you know, awful for them candy and you could have a beer in the middle of the day and you didn't feel like you were in a bar and you didn't feel like you were in a store. And so we tried to do that. And Dolly, to me, had that association with just fun. That's our, that's yes. our theme. And just a, a feeling of uh, openness and welcoming to all ages. And, and, and it really is. What are some of the items that you actually have on your menu? I, I want to just mention one other of collaboration. Is I work with a woman <laughs> who has been um, a chef uh, with Fresh Company, Kazumi Futagawa, for a really long time. I couldn't tell you when. Say her name one more time uh, slowly. Kazumi Futagawa. Okay. And um, as I said, this is the most uh, collaborative thing you know I've ever done. It's a big and deal. if you think I'm. I mean, I'm the one who rushes. She's even more particular ah. in many ways. And she's wonderful and very grounding and ha- is an amazing, amazing cook, chef. And so, and my son helped uh, start recipes and he's worked with her all these years, even wonderful. though he's not 
going to be a chef. He spends every summer with us. That part has been really great. We did all of our testing at the Garrison Institute Kitchen before we opened. And so the menu is, as you said, it's seasonal. Our motto was, come as you are, something for everyone, Mm. because we really are in a small town. And unlike here in the city, you can't really specialize exactly. There are a lot of different kinds of people, and there aren't that many people. So if people want to come often, it felt like we needed to have kind of a good number hamburgers, you know, really, we try to make them great, but there's burgers. <laughs> we do our, you know, thrice cooked fries and Caesar salad. So we have some of those items. And mm-hmm. then we have things like red chili noodles and fried mushrooms with Sancho pepper, uh, salt and pepper. So there's, you know, it's it's varied. It's fun. As I said, I think it's casual. It is pretty casual. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit component-like. It's not like a to say it's like a New Jersey diner would be silly, but we are very, very tolerant more than sometimes the kitchen wants. I'm tolerant of people substituting. Can I have rice instead of fries? So, well, I think that's you know. because it is has become kind of this. Uh, everyone feels it's their own right. Regular, a lot of regulars, home kitchen, and we're really grateful for all those regulars. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you are smack in the middle of the Hudson Valley. So do you feel the menu represents um, the local ingredients and extremely, the seasonality? Extremely. 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 Like Plus, every, people yeah. sometimes think the menu doesn't change, but, you know, it completely changes. It's just subtle. So our winter salad becomes the spring salad. The spring salad becomes, you know, I'm waiting to put pepper. I want to – I've been doing the uh, chive oil. We grow our own garlic chives. I love mm. those garlic chives. And that's been our puree that we have on our pan-fried fish. So we're waiting to do some sautéed pepper instead and mm-hmm. you know we're waiting not this week this week i think we are getting a little red round finally but you know we're very we are rigid about i mean we but we're not rigid about olive oil and spices and lemons you right, know but the things that things. come out of the, but the soil things that we can yes. get we wait we have great relationships with farmers i've been on the you know i'm very involved in the farmers market locally and that's even changed so much since i came to it's called Phillipstown, Cold Spring and Garrison together. So we have so many more opportunities to get good local ingredients. It used to all go down the throughway on the other side of the river to the city. I think one thing that happened, besides many, many people coming up from the city who wanted good local ingredients, also Blue Hill opened up on our side. So a lot of farms were willing to come down. Oh, yes. Uh, Route 9. That has all changed, right? And so we were on the way. It's very exciting. Shelley, when we come back, I want to hear what's important to you now about your legacy recipe, because I know you've brought one, and also uh, some advice for women in the industry, you know, from your perspective, 40 years in. So that's all up next. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. So thank you very much for bringing a legacy recipe. And I'm always so interested in what people bring because it tells their story. So what did you bring? I brought a recipe for a dish that we serve at Dolly's that we call clam toast. We made this decision early on to not make pasta. We are at the moment doing some 
gnocchi, but we we finally a <laughs> year in. You've already twisted your rule, right? But uh, <laughs> but we but for many reasons, there's only so we do, there's only so many things we can do in our small kitchen. But uh, you know, spaghetti and white clam sauce, linguine and white clam sauce was, is a super childhood favorite, and um, we so I thought about some ways that we might use that recipe. And I had been experimenting. My son's girlfriend, Val, is a vegan. And I had been thinking a lot about, first she was vegetarian, then she was vegan, and about how to think, and because of the Garrison Institute, of course, I always am trying to think about these like meaty texture flavors that are Mm. satisfying for, for meat eaters who are eating vegetarian food. So I had been working with roasted and sauteed and kind of braised sunchokes with lots of olive oil and garlic mm. as uh, thinking of them as little bits of soft bacon almost or, or uh, salt mm-hmm. pork. And uh, I had this flavor and test going on, maybe thinking about carbonara of some kind. Anyway, and as well, we had a long thing about how, what kind of bread we were going to serve because it's hard to get really good bread. And so there's a woman named Erin and now she's working with another woman named Liz, and they've started a, a bread baking company called Signal Fire in our oh. area, and it's extremely special. And we get it only once a week, and it's all local flours and completely whole wheat and Fabulous. Uh, sourdough and all that. So I thought about doing the toast with that bread. I love listening to your thoughts process, Shelley. <laughs> I really do. And uh, so th- th- that... Bread, toast, clam sauce in the bowl, and the Jerusalem artichoke. With, we added lemon zest and red chili flakes and thyme. It sort of all came together. And the clam Ooh. and the sunchoke is um, a very – it's like an easy combo. It's not so much a contrast as it is a – Very complimentary. A harmon- yeah, I'd say they harmonize well. And well, actually, that's such a good word because uh, you use the words – bright and fresh for your food. And I would also say that there's exquisite harmony and balance. And there's a lot of beautiful thinking that goes into these dishes. And this dish became so famous, someone came to film it for a TV show. Yes. Oh, so someone came from Verizon. It's called Restaurant Hunter. I love it. They they filmed us making a clam toast. And and they found you. That's so wonderful. Yes, Yes. You know, it's funny with the legacy recipe. I love the way this sounds and I can't wait to come to Dolly's to try it. But you are so famous, Shelley, for your scones that you serve at the Garrison Institute in the morning. You are legendary, legendary for your, you make many different kinds, but your cheddar cheese scones. I've never had anything like that. We all dream about it. We joke about it, that we can't wait to wake up in the morning to have your scones. That's another or is that a, a lo- secret a, a recipe. Vo- no, it's well, that recipe is in the book and it's evolved from uh, making them from long ago. Some of the, um, I'm not a real sweet tooth, but I do love actually to bake. And that probably started out it, Peter Dent with my friend Bob Hobie, evolving with a baker named Elise at the golf course. Then I worked with Cree Lefebvre, who, was at Fresh Company. Famous we have uh, Chris Campbell's our baker now, and he's incredible. He make he makes our scones and he makes them the same, the same in that perfect, thoughtful, the same way. You know, not repetitive, the same. And so, I'm very lucky, and they've evolved. And yeah, they're they're uh, they are good. Really, very special. So, what advice do you have for women in the food world? Or what has changed? What is your observation of what has changed over the last decades? Are things really easier, better, more opportunities? So early on, you know, the women I knew either baked, wrote, or uh, were caterers. 
They weren't really much in the restaurants. Karen Waltock at Chanterelle was in the front of the house, was perfect and amazing. And I got to work uh, for about three or four weeks. I was thinking about when I came here about this question. And I worked for th- maybe it was three or four weeks only when Judy Rogers was at Yellow Fingers. Oh, my gosh. Before she, right God, before she went, went to, to the Zuni Cafe. And she, uh, she was amazing. She's really like my age, but she was more mature than me, I think, at the time. And <laughs> I had already been in a restaurant, but I, I remember seeing her being brave enough to say mm. what she wanted, you know. And I think that's might be something some women... I, I'm even I'm a very strong opinions, but I equivocate and mince words. I, 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 I want to draw people out. I want to hear what they have to say. I don't do what I don't want to do. But at the same time, sometimes I think I could be more direct. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of guys and I and <laughs> I have a lot of young guys working for me. And I... You know, Kazumi and I are often the only women in the kitchen. We just lost one, Kelly, who was an amazing woman who worked for us. So I guess I'd say do it. <laughs> you know, it's, and be it's direct. A, it's hard, right. Do it and be direct and just bring your own energy. And Okay. So this is uh, terrific and leads us to uh, a question I ask every guest. So... What does one woman kitchen mean to you? It means kicking everybody out and being alone in my kitchen, <laughs> which is like my favorite thing to do, to be home alone in my own kitchen. Harder to do in a restaurant. Way <laughs> Never alone. <laughs> so this feels like your sanctuary. So That's where I test things. Home. That's where I try things, actually. And then I bring them back to the, um, to the restaurant. If yes. I do experiment at all, I do it. In my one-woman kitchen. Is that where you're your best self and your most creative self or your happiest self? My most confident and, yes, most, most self-possessed. That's wonderful. Shelley, thank you so much for thank joining you. me today. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining me and Shelley in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.